Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Corrine Million. Corrine is the founder of Work, which partners with organizations to increase diversity and inclusion within the workforce and advance professional leadership opportunities for the underrepresented. Prior to work, at the age of 29, Corrine co-founded and was the executive director of the Winning Edge Leadership Academy, which is devoted to building diversity in sports, business, media, and entertainment by cultivating the next generation of women and minority leaders. Corrine is a proud daughter of Haitian immigrants and thus a first-generation American. She served honorably in the United States Air Force and graduated with a degree in sports management. After school, Corrine then went on to work for legendary women's basketball coach Pat Summit at the University of Tennessee, where then she ended up working at ESPN as an event supervisor, where she managed several of the company's owned and operated athletic contests and events. Corrine's story only demonstrates how with a purpose-driven mindset and the goal of empowering the next generation, anything is possible. I hope you enjoy this episode. Listeners, before we dive into today's conversation, I want to tell you about my new favorite kitchen gadget, the Berry Blaster. I don't know about you, but I love fresh strawberries during the warm summer months. The only downside is I hate how much fruit is wasted when you cut off the top of the strawberries. Well, I recently found the Berry Blaster, which helps prevent fruit waste. And all you have to do is pop off the tops and your berries are ready to eat. You don't need to be a savant in the kitchen to use the Berry Blaster, and it's even safe for children of all ages to use. The best part is, the Berry Blaster contains no sharp knives, it's dishwasher safe, and it takes up little to no space in your kitchen. To learn more about the Berry Blaster, visit the link in this episode's show notes or go to Amazon and search Berry Blaster. Lastly, check them out on Instagram at the Berry Blaster and give them a follow. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So, Corrine, thank you so much for joining me today. Your background is so fascinating to me. And what I found really interesting when we spoke last is you are first-generation Haitian. Your parents came from Haiti. You were born here. But that your mom really emphasized golf and playing golf. And I think as a young girl, from especially with parents from Haiti, how did she get that idea in her head and why was that so important to her? Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. And I love that you started with this question because my family doesn't really do sports. Even now, I've been working in sports this whole time. And it's if it's not soccer, no one is really having a conversation about it. My mom, her business was on the golf course. And so she put me out there when I was seven. We were living in Orlando at the time. So Tiger Woods was the bee's knees, as they say. Um, and there was a local dentist in town who created a program for um, black and brown kids to really get into the game and understand the nuances of the game. And I'm so thankful. As you mentioned, like sports didn't really play a big role in your life, but it kind of has to find a little bit of your journey. Can you talk to us a little bit about post high school? Because you had a very interesting um, way into college and you also had some detours along the way. It's funny you asked that. I went to my high school last night, actually, for an alumni basketball game. And I was looking through yearbooks and I was like, oh, my gosh. 
I can't believe it. I was in Medical Explorers. I was in the Red Cross Club. I was in Vika. Shout out to all the extemporaneous speakers out there. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew if I had gone to college right out of high school, I probably was going to get in some trouble. I had been pretty sheltered. Um, and they were taking the ASVAB one day, took it. And a couple of weeks later, the Air Force recruiters giving me a call, stalking me, you know, as they do, um, and really presented an opportunity to see the world, to get some skills. And I convinced my dad because my mom was not having it. Um, I was 17. So I ended up going to basic training in Texas and spending two years in Germany working command and control. As an 18 year old in Europe, I could not have experienced a better entry into adulthood. Um, and it really has been the foundation to how I see the world today and how I, I hope to serve others as much as possible. Well, first off, thank you so much for serving our country. And what I learned about you is while you were over there, you started coaching. How did that come about? Yeah, coaching was uh, an activity. It was something I Command and control was a pretty intense role at the time on this base. Um, I worked four nights, um, then four days off, and I just needed something to do during those four days off. And I found myself coaching JV basketball and softball uh, on base and really made an impression on the base commander at the time, General Gold, uh, being his daughter was on my team and just thought, hey, my dad is the base commander. I'm going to be the captain. Right? That's just that's just what it was. And that did not happen. And I think she thought if she told her dad as an airman on his base that I would change my mind. And it was the opposite. He ended up taking um, his impression of me and writing a recommendation to attend the Air Force Academy. Um, and they're enlisted to officer program. And I could not be more appreciative of him seeing me as a leader at that young age. Cause I, I really didn't know I was a leader yet. Right. I, I did win like the volunteer airman of the year on base. I was raising money for hurricane Katrina victims. I was raising money for families of airmen who um, died in, in Germany but I was just doing these things because that's what you do as a citizen of the world, right? You just do good as much as possible. Um, but he saw more in me than I thought I could see myself and ended up in Colorado Springs, um, hoping to continue that legacy that he set out for me. And that was cut a little short, I believe, because you experienced a big tragedy. And when we spoke about this before, after our conversation, I really kind of sat and thought about, I don't know how I would have been able to move on. And your dad was sick, but didn't tell you. And you were just going about your life, building your career, your journey. And this was happening at home and you were completely left out of the, like it came out of the blue and he ended up passing away. Can you talk about that time? Because I think that so many listeners can relate to having a sick parent or not knowing how sick a parent really is. And how did you put one foot in front of the other after that? Yeah, it sucked. I'll tell you again, my dad was the reason I was able to even join the Air Force. He, I, a lot of people, um, all the good qualities in me um, that I I'm charming, I can get people to say yes when they want to say no. I get those from my dad for sure. And I came home and really didn't know what I was doing. I barely even took care of myself. 
Um, but somehow, once again, I ended up um, coming home to Georgia and coaching. And so the only thing that really got me out of the bed every day was going to coach softball in Forsyth County. Um, but, but during the day, I was in bed under the covers wallowing. But then an hour before practice, got up, got together, shook off whatever was going on and went to practice and poured into those girls every day. Um, and I think it really kept me going. And it really um, provided a sense of community that I, I was missing from the Air Force, right? Like your brothers and sisters had gone through three basic trainings and those are hard times and you build great relationships. And I was missing that. But when I came back and coaching softball and basketball, I got that sense of community and family back. And then you ended up going to school and I'm going to butcher the name of this college. It's in Minnesota. I'm not going to say Minnesota the right way either. So I'm going to let you take the reins on that. But what made you finally decide it was time to finish your education? Yeah, Bemidji, Minnesota. Shout out to the Beavers. You have to say Minnesota like that. I learned that. Um, but yeah, a teammate of mine from the Air Force Academy, she took a job as an assistant coach, basketball coach at Bemidji. And I had still VA benefits. So wherever I was going, I was going to be taken care of. And I said, sure, I'm not really, I don't really know what's going on for me right now here in Georgia. So I'll go to Minnesota and, and see what's going on. And it really changed the trajectory of my career. It was a first time really seeing the business of sports because Division two schools, when you walk in, most people in the administration in the athletics administration, they're wearing more than two hats, right? Your baseball coach is the compliance coach, is the events person. Your athletic director probably is also the game ops person. And um, I was a student assistant for the women's coach, a women's basketball team doing their video. But I also was a student worker in media relations and really starting to, again, see like it's more to sports than just being a coach or being a player, right? Like there's this whole other side of the business that need people, talented people as well. And I really took advantage of being at a small school and learning a whole lot and even the opportunity to leave school for a couple of weeks to go on this um, road trip that I created to uh, attend or work basketball tournament. So I worked the Big 12 men's and women's basketball tournament. I worked the NCAA first and second round women's tournament I worked the men's first and second round tournament. And I don't know if I could have done that had I gone to a bigger school. My teachers maybe are like, no, you need to be here. You need to stay in class and do this. But again, I was um, the student president of our sport management club at Bemidji. I was student of the year for the sport management department. So I, I had an, I had earned a little credibility to take this trip and it opened my network. I got a chance to meet a lot of people that are still in my corner till this day because of that trip. And one of the people you got to connect with was legendary coach Pat Summit. And I was doing a little research before this interview because obviously I've heard of her, but I didn't know the extent of between the Olympics and coaching and just she's I believe listed in ESPN, she's number 11 of the top 100 coaches. She's the only female on that list. What was that like? Because obviously sports is, it's changing slowly, but I would say it's majority a male dominated industry. And to be under a woman who is such a trailblazer, so respected and has 
open doors for so many female athletes and female leaders under her. What was that experience like for those two years? I, yes, no, I, I often say there's no way Coach K or Pat Summit would have a job if they coached today, right? Because if you're not winning in your first three years, you're out of there. And Coach uh, Summit had started at Tennessee driving the bus and doing the laundry and finished out eight, uh, winning eight national championships. And what was great, not only learning from her, but at the time we also had a women's athletic department. So Lady Balls for life. Um, and it really, you really saw women at the forefront of every major decision within the athletic department. And because I was her graduate assistant, oftentimes I was asked to go sit in her place or sit in on some meetings. So again, really seeing women at the forefront of a, a major university athletic department, right? Um, and I got to see leaders um, not shy away from who they were because, and I, like you said, it's a male-dominated space, and now we're wanting to have a separate logo, keep our keep the Lady Ball logo, or make sure women have just as every male coach. There's an equivalent women's coach, right? So I learned a lot, but I think um, the biggest thing that I learned were that people matter. Pat never walked into an arena and left before everybody who wanted an autograph got an autograph. Um, one of my favorite stories is um, basketball camps. That was a big part of my responsibility. And at the time, I mean, we had thousands of girls come on campus and one of the tokens was a basketball. Everybody walked away with a pass on basketball. And I don't think I could ever speak to someone who was a basketball player back in the day that didn't have a past summer basketball um, that was signed by her. And I think that's remarkable because um, it was, that's what was important to her. Yes, she was a great coach. Yes, she was the winningest coach in men's and women's basketball, but she cared about the people. If you had a project, um, but we had a game and that project was critical to your graduating, go and do that project. We have other players that can play, right? And I don't know if there are many coaches who are sacrificing, in a sense, a player um, for the greater good, right? Um, and it's just, she made me cry my first week every day. Um, and I'm so thankful that she made me tough and expected that I walked in working at the standard that she had set. And that's how I kind of go about my, how I my team, anything that I'm about, I set a standard and I expect everyone to live by it because I know that's possible. Out of curiosity, because I've had some mentors who I worked for right off the bat. And those first two weeks, I also remember crying, like when I would come home and just think I was not living up to their standards or I didn't know what they were talking about. And I hated to, you know, I knew how important their time was. I hated asking questions, but I didn't ask a question I wasn't going to do it and then it was going to be more like a bigger waste of their time how did you handle those first few weeks coming into that organization and especially under her because I feel like there's got to be a little bit of that like fangirl like oh my gosh I'm so close to this person learning from them but you're also like I don't know what you're telling me to go to this place I've never been there I don't know what you need yeah, I um, thankfully, and I don't know if people are going to give me a hard time about this. It wasn't a fangirl moment for me because my family didn't grow up in sports, right? So I knew 
this was my plan. I wanted to be a coach. I want to be a great coach. So I was going to find a way to go learn from the best. That was the, that was the journey. It wasn't, I want to work for Pat Selma because I've been a fan of Pat Selma for my whole life. It was, she was the best. So I want to learn from the best. Um, and what she did was surround herself with talented, caring people. So when I reached an obstacle or a challenge or had a question, there were so many people willing to help in the office, on campus, in the town, in the state. There is nowhere in Tennessee that I'm like, hey, I need to do this for Pat Summit, that people weren't climbing over themselves to be a part of that solution. And I actually used a Rolodex, an actual Rolodex that I had. Um, every time I connected with someone, I would save their contact because I knew I would need them again. And um, it really started to um, help me understand the importance of building relationships. And from that opportunity, you ended up getting to go to ESPN, which I would say is like the mecca of sports. Literally every sport, every division, every game, they have multiple channels. So if you want to find some random game, if you have the right kind of cable package, you'll find it. What was that experience like going into ESPN because you wanted to be a coach and then you kind of pivoted into this totally different world of sports. Yeah. After two years, I realized I did not want to become a coach again. Like the first three years, if you're not winning, um, right. It's a tough life forever. It's a tough life. You have, you're on the road all the time. You're in the gym. Um, you're pouring yourself into a lot of other people and, Sometimes I remember my mom actually said to me one day, do I need to come on an official visit for you to give me a call? Right. So I knew that I was losing a little time. And after losing my dad, it was really important for me to be available to be around. So when Pat stepped down, uh, Holly Warlick took over and she brought in a football operations guy and he saw how I really loved the operations of the camp. And he thought, had you ever thought about working bowl games? I do. Football was football is soccer. So working a bowl game was not even something I was thinking about. And I had never had ESPN. That wasn't even a thing either. Um, but because of those relationships, I ended up getting a chance to work um, ESPN events. And a lot of people don't know they produce their own events. So they produce at the time, we had 14 bowl games, uh, 10 basketball tournaments, college football award show, college basketball award show. And I managed uh, or assisted on five of those events. And it was great. It could I could not have asked for a better transition for someone who loved the game of basketball, um, but loved helping people even more. And I got a chance to transfer those to the football space and creating experiences because we did everything but playing coach in the game, right? We did ticket sales, sponsorships, game operations, logistics for the teams. And I, instead of giving a backpack, let's give them haircuts. Instead of, you know, the normal things, because I had been in tune with a, a little bit more so than my colleagues at the time, what the players were looking for. Um, and it really challenged me to, again, see the next level of business. Now we are working on the title sponsor for a bowl games, which, as you know, can get into the millions um, and really sitting in rooms, negotiating these contracts with the schools, with the coaches, making sure their experience is good. And we're producing a great product um, because I didn't do anything on TV, but I had to make sure the game looked good on TV and was on time. 
So I have had experience doing events with the PGA during the FedEx playoff events. Uh, My current role, I'm a director of national events and strategic partnerships. I also do digital engagement, but no one understands the hours, the sweat, the time that go into creating an event. And when people come and they go, oh, this is so great. And this seems so easy. And we can just whip this up again. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand (laughs) how much like the details are in and having to manage all these different teams, whether it's like bringing in sponsorships or caterers or tickets and, you know, oh my gosh, it's going to rain. Do we have a rain plan in place? Or, oh, you know, in today's society, it's kind of fucked up to have to deal like an active shooter process like what happens if this happens and you are so on I just actually came off a week of doing six events and I am dead it's so much brain power and also having to be on because you're meeting people and you're meeting people for the next event or hey we're going to come back and ask you for you know a few hundred thousand dollars to be a sponsor of this event how did you manage all that because I can only imagine the bowl games, ESPN, making sure on television it looks great, knowing where everyone is. It's a lot. I'm, I can't even imagine what your project plans and timelines used to look like. But how, yeah. how did you like yeah. manage that since that was like a new thing for you? I, honestly, the people fueled me. It was all about the experience. And as long as people were having a good time, whether you're a fan, a player, a coach, a sponsor... I kept going and I only had a one serious rain delay. We actually just stopped the game altogether as a Miak Swag challenge. And I can remember it vividly because we were, we were just waiting for the lightning to stop. And every time the time was going to end, another strike would happen. And we're like, Oh crap. But uh, I really leaned into the experiences um, and learning. One of my favorite events was the armed forces classic as a veteran going to Puerto Rico on a coast guard base, taking an, a hangar that they were actively deploying missions in and converting it into a basketball arena. So the flooring, the stadium seats, the lights, the locker rooms, all of that with local workers while they're doing missions and bringing in an entire production company. So, um, but thankfully it was Louisville and Minnesota uh, were playing. So Patino, Patino, and the wife made it, the elder Patino's wife made it real simple because she said, everybody's traveling together. We're doing, this is a family affair. This is what we're doing. So I was thankful for that. But it was something that as hard as it was to work with local uh, workers who don't speak the same language or dealing with a helicopter flying in and out, it was about the experience for those players getting a chance to play in front of these um, military members. It was about the military members understanding that we appreciate the work that they are doing and it was great and if if that's what it was no matter how bad my feet hurt every night laying down I could feel them throbbing um it was worth it because the next day I would wake up and and get a chance to put a smile on somebody's face I know last time we spoke you mentioned how you wish you would have stayed at ESPN a little bit longer but there was something inside of you that really told you to go and start your nonprofit at 29 years old. And I just want to touch on that a little bit because before I, you know, really want to dive into work and what you're doing now, but can you just talk about what your nonprofit really focuses on and why did you feel the need to start it? 
as a global citizen, again, you listen, you hear, you hear the challenges that people have. And I understand my privilege, right? I have two degrees. Um, I've worked with Press Summit. I've served my country. These are a lot of opportunities that open doors for me. Um, and I know there are a lot of people that don't have those same opportunities. And at the time I was working at ESPN, I was an adjunct professor at a HBCU in Charlotte. And a lot of my upperclassmen who are getting ready to graduate and wanted to work in sports, they were already four years behind their peers who at Tennessee, they had already started working in the athletic department when they were freshmen, right? And I'm sitting at ESPN and we have ACC Media Day and SEC Media Day. And I'm looking around like, where are the students that I'm teaching, right? You're, we, I see students from Queens and, and Johnson and Wales and UNC Charlotte, but I don't see students from Johnson C. Smith. And um, my good friend Maria Taylor was just getting started out on SEC Network as well. And she understood her privilege, right? She played basketball and volleyball at Georgia. Everybody loves her. She was a rising star. And we combined forces and created opportunities. That's really what it was about. It was about how can we use the doors that have opened for us, the mentors that have poured into us and, and pour into other, um, into the next generation. And it really evolved into not just a mentoring program because mentoring is a mentor is a word that is thrown out often that not everybody lives up to um, and turned into providing professional development experiences really intentional on creating networks for minority student athletes who wanted to work in sports um, and creating a community because no one gets to where they are by themselves. And we wanted them to see that people were there for them. And just so listeners know, uh, you, the nonprofit is called the Winning Edge Leadership Academy. And I will go ahead and put a link to that in this episode show notes. But after that, you just you never really stop. You just keep going, which is so amazing and inspiring. But you founded Work, a talent sourcing firm specializing in connecting sports, media, and entertainment companies with a community of qualified talent. Talk to us about what Work does, who they work with, how can people get involved, everything. Yeah. And I love that you you read out what Work is because it has since evolved because of our partners to providing full tailored HR solutions, right? So beyond just talent sourcing, that talent sourcing was what our what my partners from the Winning Edge wanted the Winning Edge to be, but they were paying donations and they should have been paying invoices. And then when we started, when I started getting invoices for the talent sourcing. Um, I, I was just too good and people wanted more. And so going out and building work to be a full service HR firm providing fractional services for rising and legacy organizations has been amazing because I know as a nonprofit leader myself, people are your biggest assets. And as you're growing a business, if the people aren't, if you don't have the right people in the right seat on the bus, it's going to be hard to drive that bus and focus on your business. So being able to um, bring a team of experts in HR, actually my first HR business partner from ESPN is now my chief people officer. Um, and so being able to support clients like Eastside Golf and their steep, steep trajectory from hiring their first intern three years ago to hiring their first full-time folks two years uh, last year 
um, and really being able to continue to help them stay compliant, save money, and and keep their talent has been fantastic. And now working with like PGA of America and helping them identify and engage talent for their PGA Works fellowships, working with Wilson Sporting Goods to create engagement strategies for their roles is it's like what I've been doing this whole time, right? Like I've been, I've engaged my community, I've engaged partners, um, but now with work, we are taking it to the next level and really helping organizations with the needs that sometimes can be on the back burner for a small business. Um, and for a large business, they just need additional help with. Where do you want work to go? You're talking about how you're going to help these companies, but in your mind, in a perfect world, where would work be in two or three years? Right now, work is really the only professional employment organization in the sports industry. And we want to continue to build that. For me, it's about a collective, again, of HR experts coming together and using their experience to help this industry. And so in two years, I see us having hubs in major cities across the country with folks helping if you, oh, you're in Chicago, we have a hub in Chicago and we're going to help the Chicago Cubs and Wilson Sporting Goods and all those Chicago-based teams. Oh, I'm here in Atlanta. We're going to dominate in the Atlanta area, really helping with, you know, the tech space is growing. Everybody now has some type of NIL collective. All these, all this new money coming into the sports industry, uh, they, need, they need people. And if we can be a those partners in finding and keeping um, people where I want to be that person. So we started this conversation talking about how you started playing golf at seven and you are wearing a master's hat. Yes. What did it feel like being at Augusta? The Like obviously the home of golf is St. Andrews, but in the United States, when you think about golf, it's either Augusta or Pebble, but being at Augusta, seeing what that was. And also as a black individual being on that course, knowing its history, what came up for you? Well, first of all, I was thankful that I'm very um, vocal about my love of golf and that my friend got tickets and didn't know anyone else who would enjoy it. So she invited me. Um, and, you know, knowing the history and everything, it, it excited me even more. And getting to the course and immediately seeing folks from ESPN that I know and being able to give them a hug just reduce any kind of anxiety that I had because I knew I belonged there. It was okay. I actually know the game. I understand the game. Um, and not having a cell phone and being able to spend time with my friend and being a vehicle for her to see the game, how I see it was the best. And I actually got a chance to um, talk to the Admiral David Robinson. And it was funny because I don't think he he was definitely surprised that someone recognized him there. And I was like, how can you're like seven feet tall? People are going to see you. Um, but that's what the game of golf is, right? Your favorite athlete probably is on the golf course right now. Um, and that's what it does. Cause you can, it's a lifelong sport. You can play until you're 99 and being able to be at the masters and eating pimento cheese sandwiches. Cause they're my favorite pimento cheese. Is my, I would eat pimento cheese every day, all day. Um, and so only spending $5 or $2 for a good sandwich was, was pretty great. Um, but again, anytime I could bring um, my community to the game of golf, I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm very jealous. I surprised my dad for his 60th with tickets 
a few years ago, but sadly, my grandfather was passing away during that week. So we had to not go and said we watched the Masters with him for the final time. But I've always said one day I will get my dad and I back there um, because it's just that experience I want to have with him. Because like you, I started playing when I was six. It's a family sport. We all play and great memories, but it is one of those games that you can have a bad day on the course and then go back the next day. And it's a completely different experience. It's more mental than sometimes physical. And it just is sometimes so great to detach for four hours and be outside and really just take it all in. Yes. And I actually was playing golf with my friend yesterday and we were talking about that and he's a black business owner as well. And we were like, I don't know if I would have ever really thought I would be a business owner playing golf with another black business owner and just us having a good time. And I'm so thankful for the privilege to be able to do that. Absolutely. So real fast, I just have to ask, what's your take on the live versus PGA issue? (laughs) Have you watched the Netflix docuseries? I mean, the tweets have been back and forth. It's I'm watching these grown men who you always respected really getting aggressive with each other on Twitter, which let's talk about that guys take it offline, but it's, it's really disrupting the industry. Yes. It's funny. Cause I asked my friend or he asked me, everybody was asking me about this. Um, and I was, and I said, you know, they come on here in Atlanta, they come on Peachtree TV on Saturday and Sunday. And I never watch it. i never stopped to watch it. And my friend said, which I don't know how problematic this is, but he's like, it's probably unpatriotic to watch. And I was like, I don't know about all of that, but it's like something in me that's like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if this is what I could. And I'm sure in like five years, this won't even matter. Like they'll be whatever. And will it won't even be a thing because people didn't think overtime elite was people were going to fall in love with overtime elite and they're killing it. Right. They were like, how can you pay high school basketball players? And it's like, it's working. People are going. I, it's a full house every time I go. Right. Um, yeah. And so I don't I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about live 10 years from now. But right now, I'm not really watching it. But- I'm, not, I'm not either, because I feel like as a consumer, you have power where your dollars are going, where your views are going. And given um, the history of the country that is financially backing live, I'm using very vague terms. If you want to yes. Google it, go for it. But it's really hard for me, especially what what this podcast is about, to really want to back an organization that's being funded by a country or, you know, individuals who really um, don't believe in freedom for every type of person, no matter their sexual orientation, religion, you know, X, Y, and Z. So that's kind of where I'm at with the whole thing. But I will say folks that I know that are engaged with live, the one thing that is different from, you know, their experience in other spaces is like, they're getting, they are seeing more, right? So I talked to a lot of other minority golfers and they're like, yeah, because I was on KPMG or Corn Ferry or whatever they were on before and I wasn't respected that much. But now I go to live and I'm getting my money, I'm getting respect, I'm having a good time. So everybody is gonna see um, see it differently and we have to acknowledge like, hey, live is shining a bigger 
even a bigger light on some of the gaps that our country has in golf and maybe it'll have some people step up. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I feel like there's competition, you see the other um, group really step up. And I'm not saying the PGA has always been 100% like, yeah, everyone's welcome, but it's forcing them to really try and also treat their athletes and pay them and trickle down. And I feel like that's a theme happening in our country with the writer's strike and like, you know, people who work hard should also be able to earn a living doing what they enjoy. But that's a separate tangent. But I also, I'm going to close this out with people don't remember. It wasn't, it was just 1961 that black golfers were even allowed to play on the golf course. So that's within some folks lifetime. So a hundred percent. And so that's also why it's like hard when people are like, well, you know, the PGA hasn't always been on the up and up either. And I think there's going to be a little bit more of a reckoning where people have to acknowledge the past and say, we're going to do better and we're trying to do better. Absolutely. And athletes too. I actually, I just had um, an individual, uh, Pat Creedon on who directed the film, The Loyola Project, looking at the Loyola run in 1963 and how their coach played four black players when the unwritten rule was you couldn't play more than two black starters and that whole uh, demographic and also that everything that was happening and when you really look at the film the film's not really about basketball it's about what was happening in society and how the coaches in Loyola were handling this like race issue it was fascinating conversation but like you said a lot of this is still in people's lifetimes yes yes so but we're here now we're people like me we're we're, we won't be stopped so (laughs) no I'm really excited to continue watching to see what you're doing because it seems like you just keep evolving and growing and moving and connecting people to make access easier for all different types of people to be able to realize, hey, I do have a place or I am able to achieve this and you're not gatekeeping, which is so important. Yes, I, I re- it's, it's like my my friends say is like my biggest flaw. Like I would, the when I had my nonprofit, I basically made people way more money than I was making. I was getting people jobs left and right and I'm living at home with my mom and I'm like, okay, he's going to come back, he's going to come back work has has come back and helped me with that absolutely and i do think people always remember when someone helps them they always somehow pop up later in life and say let me help you let me repay it i truly believe in that thank you so much for talking with me today i end every episode with the final three questions and the first question is if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by what would that be my guy here muhammad ali um service to others is the rent you pay for your time on earth it is definitely my north star um it's something that i try to be an example of every single minute of every single day even when i'm sleeping i'm hoping connections that i've made are are um creating a positive impact because it's important i think you're really living that just from the few times we've spoken and seeing what you're doing the second Of course. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I'm going to say, if I could relive one day, 
what could I relive? I would say I've lived a pretty good life. I take risks, nothing. I don't regret anything. But if I was to say, I would say high school graduation, because that was like one of the last times, like everybody, my family, everybody was together. Um, and I would probably take a better mental picture of that time together. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Um, I'm going to go with Getting to the Money. <laughs> um, and I don't know, I don't even know if that's the name of the song and I should have done more research, but uh, it's called Getting to the Money. And um, the beat, everything about it is just embodies what I want to do because it's not about becoming rich for myself so I can sit in a safe and dive into gold coins like uh from the Mighty Ducks or not not Mighty Ducks but you know which I'm talking about Uncle Warbucks or whatever his name is but it's really about how much money can I make to create more opportunities for folks so getting to the money is definitely my theme song so I'm going to add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify so listeners can hear your theme song along with everyone else. And listeners, I'll put links to work and everything you need to know that we talked about on this episode so you can go ahead and uh, get in touch, help, pay it forward, everything that Corrine's uh, really working to do. Awesome. So thank you so much. I know. I appreciate you. 